you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to ask you to turn once again in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And while you're turning there, I want to ask, did anyone in your life ever entrust something to you that they didn't entrust to anyone else? Maybe it was a member of your family or, or a friend, and they took you aside, and they whispered in your ear, listen, I, I'm going to tell you this, but I'm not telling anybody else. And you're like, wow, really? You're, you're not telling anybody else? Only me? That's right. You're the only person that knows because I can trust you. Maybe somebody gave you a thing, something, and they entrusted it into your care because they believed that they could trust you with it. Well, well, how does that trust, someone else's trust in you, make you feel? And what does it make you want to do? You know, when the stock market crashed in, in 1929, my grandmother was married with, with one baby and another one would be born two years later. And so my grandmother really raised her family all during the height of the Great Depression. And she want, learned one thing from that time, and that is don't trust banks. <laughs> and so she didn't, at least not with all of her money. And so my grandmother hid her money in different places around her house. So when I was about 18 years old, my grandmother took me aside and said, I'm going to show you where I've hidden all my money. And you're the only one I'm showing. And so she did. She showed me where she hid all her money. Well, my grandmother died about five years later. And so then I had a choice to make, didn't I? You know, was I going to tell people where that money was or was I going to keep it for myself? Would I keep my grandmother's trust or not? And so I'd be lying if I said I wasn't tempted to keep that money. No one would have known. And in a few months, I was going to need to buy an engagement ring. <laughs> Sorry, honey. <laughs> now, now you know that little chip I gave you could have been so much bigger. But I knew that my grandmother had put her trust in me. And so when she died, I, I took my mother, I took my aunt, I showed them all the places where the money is. Look under this drawer, taped underneath, you'll find an envelope. Look in those curtains, sewed in the hem, you'll find money there. And, and so it was. But believe me, what, what I did had very little to do with my character. It had much more to do with the character of my grandmother, who was a woman of great love. She loved me throughout my life. She supported me. She invested in me. And she found me worthy of her trust. And so because of who she was, I would not think of breaking that trust this morning. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to see that the Lord has given a trust to us. And so the choice confronts us as well. Will we keep the trust that he has given us, or will we not? And I believe we'll be much more likely to keep that trust when we focus our eyes on Christ and his character, who he is, what he has done for us by giving a trust to us. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 13, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to hear read together verses 12 of verses 10 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will, make an ab and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. 
This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see, and though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly, hear with their, they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to understand your truth that you have spoken to us, your truth that you have preserved for us, the truth by which you intend that we would shape our entire lives, Lord, around you and your truth. I pray that through the work of your spirit this morning, that will be reality for us. People shaped and transformed by your truth. People eager to keep the trust that you have given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Over the course of the last three weeks, we've been looking at Matthew 13 at some of the parables of the kingdom that Jesus taught his disciples. We looked at the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the parable of the hidden treasure, and the parable of the pearl of great price. We did not look at the parable of the sower or the parable of the weeds or the parable of the net. Needless to say, Jesus did a lot of storytelling here, all at one time in one place in Matthew chapter 13. And so the disciples want to know, why is Jesus teaching them in parables? Look in verse 10. They say, why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus' answer in verse 11 is absolutely amazing. It's like Jesus is leaning over and whispering a great trust into the ears of his disciples. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. Wow. If that doesn't blow back your spiritual hair and knock your spiritual breath out of you, I don't know what will. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. Most translations translate this word secret as mystery. And here is what a mystery is in Scripture. Listen, a mystery is the unmanifested or private counsel of God, the secret thoughts, plans, and dispensations of God, which are hidden from human reason, as well as from all other comprehensions below the divine level. Okay, that's us, right? Get that straight. We are below the divine level. And these mysteries await either their fulfillment or revelation to those for whom they are intended. That's A mystery of God. It's like hopping on the magic school bus and taking a trip inside the mind of God. The God who 
whose mind conceived the universe and everything that's in it, the God whose power executed what his mind conceived and continually sustains it, this God, amazingly enough, reveals his secrets of his mind, the mysteries of his thoughts and his power to these disciples. So no wonder Jesus says in verse 16, look there. Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but didn't see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And so we read these verses, and everywhere we see the grace of God. God giving them the privilege of knowing his secrets. Mysteries that would bless their lives. Mysteries that would give them an abundant life, a rich life, a full life. But mysteries that would be completely hidden from them, unknown to them, if Jesus had not revealed them to them. And that's grace, right? Jesus gives it to them. In Matthew 16, Peter makes his great confession Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. It's the grace of God revealing this truth to Peter. In Luke chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Are you feeling the grace of God? Are you? You're not. Are you feeling the grace of God? What would we know? What would we have if God had not revealed Himself to us? This is grace. God has not hidden Himself. God has revealed himself to his people. Others long to hear and see, but we're not granted that privilege. You can hear the longing in what Isaiah writes in chapter 64. Oh, Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. See, Isaiah had a concept of a God who would come down. Open the heavens, Lord. Come down. Make your name known. But God did not come down. Not for Isaiah anyway. Isaiah never saw what he longed for. But these disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, fishermen, Matthew, a despised tax collector, along with the other disciples. These unlikely men are the ones that God determined, I will grace you. I will bless you. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. What? Grace. Grace calls for action. I want to say that again. Grace calls for action. And I'm going to have you say that with me, can you? 
Grace calls for action. Now, you've done what a lot of conservative evangelicals don't, don't want to do. <laughs> We're afraid to link grace and action, or grace and doing together. We try to keep them far apart because we have this fear. We have this fear if we talk about doing things, then people might not really understand what grace is. And people might think, well, God does for me because I do for God. He's obligated to. And then, well, that's not grace at all. So what do we do? We teach grace. We preach about grace. Awesome. Wonderful. But we don't do anything. And I think that's largely why our culture is in the state that it's in. Because we're afraid to put grace and doing together. And so our culture has lost its moorings and it's drifted further and further away from God. But let me tell you, this is ridiculous thinking. Grace can still be grace and require something of us. Grace can still be grace and yet call for action from us. That's what we see in verse 11. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. That word given, it's an action word. And in this context, it means to grant by formal action, to grant to someone power or authority. And so there's real action taking place in these verses between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is taking what belongs to him and giving it to the disciples. He has now deposited his wisdom, the secrets, the mysteries, the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. He has deposited them within the disciples. And so now the mysteries are in their accounts. And the, and the disciples are obligated to use what Jesus has given to them. Jesus does something very similar in Luke chapter 12. He says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And here, again, is the grace of God. You know, it reminds me how wrong we often are in our view of God. We just think wrong thoughts about Him. It's His pleasure. We think of God as mean, angry, harsh. No, it pleases God. It pleases God to give his people, his disciples, the kingdom. And so here is his grace. And then look, after he gives them his kingdom, in the light of the grace, Jesus calls the disciples to fight off fear and to act. The kingdom has been given to you. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, right? Grace and action. The kingdom has been given to you. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. See, we are so wrong to believe that the grace that God has lavished on us is just for our own private enjoyment. To talk about grace, but never do anything with it. God's grace calls us to act. It's my pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. God graces us so that we can give. The reality of the kingdom of heaven always calls for action. Let me just demonstrate this again. Matthew finishes telling the story of Jesus' birth in in his gospel in chapter 1 and 2. And then he opens chapter 3 with these words. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The present reality of the kingdom requires an action. Repentance. The kingdom is here. There's God's grace. Repent. Chapter 4. 
Matthew begins describing the public ministry of Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here, the grace of God. Repent, act. The blessings and the knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven require action from the disciples. They must keep the trust. They are never to hoard for themselves what has been entrusted to them. That would be wrong, just as wrong as it would have been for me to keep all that money that my grandmother had hidden in her house. Jesus graces the disciples by entrusting the mysteries of the kingdom to them. That action requires that they keep the trust. That is how they act. The the walls of Sforza Castle held a secret. Sforza Castle was built in Milan in 1450 for the Duke of Milan. It was his royal residence. And this castle became the center of Renaissance learning and culture. And you know what that was like. After all those centuries in the Dark Ages, the Renaissance has come and and beauty has reemerged. And this, this castle was the center of it. But about 50 years later, in 1499, the French came and conquered Milan. And they turned the castle into a barracks. Then the Spanish came along after the French. And then after the Spanish, the Austrians came along. And the former Grand Palace and the Grand Hall that had been the center of Renaissance learning and culture that had been turned into a barracks, was then turned into a shelter for artillery horses. In other words, it was turned into a barn. All right? Well, hundreds of years later, the secret was discovered. In what had been turned into a horse stable, under 20 layers of whitewash, restorers found a mural. And the more whitewashed the restorers removed, the bigger the mural got. Until finally, a massive mural was discovered that depicted trees growing up from the walls onto the ceiling where the branches formed a pergola. Now guess who painted that mural? Leonardo da Vinci. A da Vinci masterpiece completely hidden under layers of whitewash in a room smelling of horse dung until gifted restorers uncovered it. Let me tell you, that is not unlike the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in its fullness is a masterpiece. A masterpiece that God began in the glorious garden called Eden will find its fullness in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, the fulfilled kingdom of God. And that is a masterpiece beyond description or or comprehension. And so God gives the apostle John, kind of in his own terms, a description of it. And so, yeah, the streets are paved with gold, and the gates are made of pearl, and the foundations of precious stone. That's God's masterpiece. 
But in Jesus' day, the masterpiece of God's kingdom had been covered over by layer after layer after layer of sin. And we know that to be the cumulative effect of sin over time. All was perfect in the garden that God created. But over time, the sin that entered into that perfection of God's creation took its toll. And time marched on until the days of Noah. When the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth and his heart was filled with pain. Was anything wrong with the perfection of God's masterpiece? No. People did not keep the trust. Sin so covered God's masterpiece that humans devolved from walking and talking with God in the coolness of the day to a point where every inclination of their thought, of their hearts, was only wicked all the time. The glory of God in man completely covered over, and so God stopped the madness. He did. This insane downward spiral into total and complete godlessness, and he sent a flood to destroy the earth. And he began again through Noah, And his family. But even after the flood, even after Abraham, the man through whom God created his covenant people, even after Moses and the Exodus, even after Mount Sinai and the the revelation of the beautiful law of God, even then, God's masterpiece was covered over by sin and by unfaithfulness so that God had to once again destroy. He destroyed the holy city. He destroyed the wondrous temple. And he sent his people into exile. When he allowed those people to come back from exile and return to their land, the law to them was no longer a means of getting to God. The law became an idol unto itself. And God's plan for relationship with his people, was covered over by legalistic obedience to a body of law to which they had added their own laws and the people worshipped the law instead of the giver of the law. Now, was anything wrong with God's masterpiece? Was it? No. People did not keep the trust. Sin, in its ugly manifestations of pride and greed And striving for position and power, all the sins that plague us, so covered God's masterpiece from sight that humans devolved from having a close, intimate relationship with God to being legalistic, dead men. And that's what Scripture says. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And these dead men were killing others as well. And so Jesus says to them, Woe to you! Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. That was the world into which Jesus came, and so he came to stop the madness. Jesus came to begin the restoration work, to uncover the beautiful masterpiece 
And so with each of these stories, these parables, in Matthew 13, the ones that that we looked at and the ones at which we did not look, Jesus is uncovering another brushstroke in God's kingdom masterpiece. And by giving the disciples the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, he's entrusting to them the mysteries that will continue to uncover and restore the masterpiece. Because what Jesus is really entrusting to them is himself. For the apostle Paul, a mystery is something too profound for human ingenuity. And so he writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Jesus is the revealed mystery of God. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, simply does not make sense to human reason. And that's precisely why you can tell yourself and all those who ask, the human mind could have never conjured up a person so as amazing as Christ. The human mind could have never conceived of a work so amazing as the work that Christ did on the cross. A work that was full of love and mercy and compassion and grace, while at the same time, a work that perfectly fulfilled the perfect justice of God without making God lenient, without making God an easy patsy or a God who winks at sin. No, all of it. The person of Christ and all he was and all he did, they all converge to make him the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king of the kingdom of heaven. And these are the mysteries that are given to the disciples and to us. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like our culture is having this great cumulative effect, covering over the masterpiece of God, bearing His truth under such convincing lies that it seems silly or anachronistic to believe them. And so I feel like they are putting on whitewash, whitewash, quicker than we can take it off. And I wonder if that's true because we as God's people have failed to keep the trust. If we are not, you and I, continually pondering the mysteries of Jesus that he's entrusted to us, meditating on them, meditating on him, meditating on his grace, then what will we have? What will we have that will give us the ability to to remove the whitewash? And uncover and restore the masterpiece that is the kingdom of God. That is the masterpiece. The beauty of life in God's kingdom. The beauty of life lived with Jesus, the king of that kingdom. And so that's why Jesus over and over in this chapter says the kingdom of heaven is like. See, he wants us to know what the masterpiece looks like. Because it's only when the masterpiece is uncovered and put on display that everything else in this world will be seen for the shabby, pitiful, 
amateur fakes that they are when they are compared to God's true masterpiece, to his kingdom, and to Jesus as the king. And so we've got to keep the trust. The mysteries, the knowledge, the kingdom of heaven have been given to us so that we in turn can offer them to others. Real life with the real king. And so all of us have to ask where that trust, where does it fit into our lives? Young people, you're setting goals for your life right now. Jobs you want to have, family you want to have. Where does keeping this trust fit into those plans? Older people, you're retired. Your time is your own. Your money is your own because your kids finally moved out of the house. (laughs) What are you going to do to keep the trust? Where does that fit into your retirement? People in between who are in the thick of careers, in the thick of careers, where does keeping this trust fit in? Or people who are in the thick of careers and in the thick of, of having children and raising children, where does keeping this trust fit into your life and fit into your plans? Because we know this, grace requires action, right? Grace requires action. We know this, we can't keep it all to ourselves. That's not why Christ has entrusted so much to us. We've got to keep the trust because of the character of Christ himself. His love, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness require it of us that we are people of action, restoring, revealing the masterpiece. I don't know what that looks like in your life. We're going to sing a song in just a minute that offers us some suggestions. If this will be true, if we will restore and reveal this masterpiece, it may require that we cross borders in our lives to to places we're uncomfortable. It will require, we can't do it alone, we're going to have to join hands and join together in this great restoration task. We're going to have to go out with the gospel and tell people the power to break sin's oppression in their life. we got to go out and say, hey, I have an announcement. The kingdom of heaven is here. You get it. All these things required of us, sacrifice, commitment. But when we're faithfully committed to action, the whitewash will not be able to keep up with the beautiful brushstrokes of the kingdom that we're revealing right here and right now with the truth about Jesus. And when the masterpiece is complete, every eye is going to see it. You know that? That's what Scripture says. Every eye will behold when Christ returns. We'll see the glory of the risen Lord. And we, along with all creation, will proclaim Jesus is Lord. Is that good news? Yeah. That makes it worth it for us to keep the trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we should be speechless. Unfortunately, I'm rarely speechless, but we should be speechless, Lord, in light of your grace. Completely overwhelmed to think that you, the God of the universe, would entrust the thoughts of your mind, the the profound thoughts and truths of your mind to us. 
And so when we say, why me, Lord, we can't answer that question except with one word, grace. You give us freely what we do not deserve. And so we thank you for it. Father, forgive us if we have ever made grace out to be something that we just hoard for ourselves. To think that we are so important, of ultimate importance, that you would give us your grace and just, that's the end of the story. No, Lord, you grace us for purpose so that we can share your grace and the good news of the gospel with others. So that as we've seen in these parables over the last three weeks, your kingdom grows from the tiniest of seeds, a mustard seed, into a tree where the birds of the air make their nests. We share the mysteries, the grace you've given to us so that the gospel permeates our lives and permeates our culture, just like the yeast permeated the lump of dough into which it was placed. Lord, you are our great treasure. You revealed yourself to us. And our lives should be lives of joy, just as the man who found the treasure. They should be lives of sacrifice. Lord, I will give everything I have in order to make this treasure my own. So, Father, help us to to act. Make us eager, Lord, to leave this place and start washing away the whitewash, Lord, that has covered up the beauty of your truth and your masterpiece and your gospel. It's been covered up with sin. It's been covered up with lies. Lord, give us both the willingness and the ability to to, to wipe it off, remove it layer by layer, so that your beauty and the beauty of your kingdom and the beauty of Christ the King can be seen by all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.